0: Dissatisfaction with big tech and bias against big business generally are leading some policymakers to look at antitrust as a shiny new tool to go after business practices they don't like. Among the current antitrust proposals, throwing out what's called the consumer welfare standard, which makes consumer welfare the primary aim of antitrust enforcement,
1: and replacing it with a presumption that bigness itself is bad. The thing is, we've done that before, and it was the wild, wild west of antitrust enforcement, with courts holding big businesses liable for all sorts of good competitive conduct simply out of fear of bigness. A dissent from 1966 shows why that regime was wrong and why we shouldn't be so quick to return to the anti-big business days of hipster antitrust yore. I'm Anastasia Bowden. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and this week on DIST, we're taking on United States
0: versus Vons Grocery.
2: Court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent.
3: For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent.
2: We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent.
3: I
4: dissent.
1: Seven signs you're a hipster. One, you like craft beer. Two, you wear tight jeans. Three, you have a man bun. Four, you only buy records. Five, you liked the band before it was cool. Six, you ride a bike to work. Seven, you like 1960s antitrust policy.
2: Everybody wants to be hip. Nobody wants to be a hip, hip, hipster. You used to wear
1: We've come a long way since the 1960s when it comes to antitrust policy. But some people, fueled by populism or thirst for government power, want to go back to the dark ages of antitrust law. Personalities as diverse as Josh Hawley and Elizabeth Warren are rooting for the same thing, weaponizing antitrust to criminalize big business in and of itself, as they did in the 1960s. You might call it.
4: Hipster antitrust.
0: So what is it exactly that these hipsters want to take us back to? Let's start at the beginning. The first question to ask is, how is antitrust law enforced in this country? We know just the guy to ask.
4: I'm Joshua Wright, university professor and executive director of the Global Antitrust Institute at Scalia Law School.
1: Josh is also a former FTC commissioner.
4: The Sherman Act is the signature federal U.S. antitrust laws passed in 1890. Um, To give a sense for listeners, there really are two premier antitrust statutes in the U.S. and then some sort of uh, minor league players on the side. The Sherman Act set up the prohibitions on price fixing, agreements between competitors not to compete. Sherman Act Section 2 does monopolization, set the rules of the game for what a single firm can do to influence competition.
0: In short, the Sherman Act prohibits certain anti-competitive conduct.
4: And then the the second major player is the Clayton Act, which is essentially merger control.
1: That is, the Clayton Act gives the government the ability to break up mergers between companies that it thinks are anti-competitive. What was the goal of these antitrust laws originally? Turns out that's a very hard question.
4: You just one of those um, nice sort of smorgasbord legislative histories where you get the act is to protect competition, the act is to protect individual competitors, the acts to advance social welfare, it's to protect particular industries, it's everything to everyone essentially all the time, right? And if you go and read the cases from 1890 to 1977, my, um, my, my Colleague uh, Judge Ginsburg at Scalia Law, and often often co-author, has a nice passage in an article where he says, with with greater authority and panache than I ever could in my writing, you know, if you read all of those cases, the lesson is is that the antitrust law was something like uh, had too many masters was the idea, right? And so, in individual cases, um, antitrust would be trying to maximize six things at once sometimes in inconsistent ways, sometimes the inconsistencies uh plaguing the same case. It would be very difficult if you came down and read all of the cases I sort of gave you a random draw of the cases from 1890 to 1977 and said, tell me the purpose of the Sherman Act. You could say anything on that laundry list of uh, consumer welfare, protect small business, protect big business, protect uh, national defense, security, the climate, whatever you like. You'd get partial credit for sure.
0: That vagueness was, in part, intentional. Congress criminalized certain anti-competitive conduct and left it up to courts to decide what that meant. Here's another antitrust policy wonk on the history behind the Sherman Act. My name's Ashley Baker. I'm director of public policy at the Committee for Justice. The Sherman Act of
5: 1890, um, among other things, it it's being contracts and restraint of trade, um, which overall is pretty vague wording and meant to be interpreted by the courts over the years in a way that's a bit more similar to common law, but it's something that the court struggled with for quite a while um, to actually give the law, the body of law itself the proper guide roads. Said Josh.
4: I have some sympathy for uh, the Article 3 judges sort of handed the blank slate of the statutory text that says in the case of Sherman Act Section 1, restraints of trade are unlawful and are a felony.
0: Because as Ashley said, I mean, pretty much any
5: business transaction is a contract and restraint of trade.
4: And they sort of handed this to the judge and there were really tough questions to address about what would be unlawful and what would not be. What were the bad restraints of trade and what were the ones that promoted? it? And they just punted the whole darn thing uh, and said, uh, let's let the guys in robes figure it out. Same thing on section two. All it prohibits is uh, monopolization. What's that? Good luck, article three judges. And they struggled.
1: This had sometimes contradictory results. In some cases, the FTC and the Supreme Court interpreted the antitrust statutes as existing to serve the small mom-and-pop businesses of the time, or to protect small dealers and worthy men, as the court said in one case. But in other cases, or sometimes even in the same case, the court would say antitrust wasn't meant to protect particular competitors, but instead to protect competition, Which, of course, might result in fewer small businesses as successful businesses rise to the top. Often,
0: courts would determine antitrust liability by counting fingers, using size or market concentration as a proxy for anti competitive behavior. If there were too few businesses in the market, or if the business was too big, they'd presume the business's conduct was anti competitive, regardless of the conduct's effect on consumers. In this way, antitrust enforcement sometimes hurt consumers because it punished behavior that consumers found beneficial, and which had led to the business's bigness in the first place.
4: There's no dispute that the antitrust rules before 1977 condemned as unlawful and sometimes criminal all sorts of pro-competitive behavior. They punished innovation, they punished competition, they punished low prices.
1: Perhaps one of the worst examples is Utah Pie versus Continental Baking Company, Where Utah Pie sued three national pie makers for allegedly injuring it by selling frozen fruit pies at low prices in Salt Lake City. Utah Pie Company was a local bakery that entered the frozen pie business in late 1957. At the time, the Salt Lake City frozen pie market was quickly growing. Before the entry of Utah Pie into the market, Salt Lake City residents mainly got their pies from national food companies but Utah Pie used local facilities and low prices to secure two-thirds of the frozen fruit pie market in the city. In response, the three national pie companies tried to compete by lowering their prices. The result was that Utah Pie's sales and profits continued to grow because the market continued to grow, but its market share started to decrease. In a shocking decision, the Supreme Court held that the effect of the national
0: company's competitive pricing on Utah Pie's market share made the conduct illegal. It didn't matter whether that price competition actually benefited consumers or whether there was some sort of conspiracy among the companies to harm Utah Pie, which there wasn't. The only thing that mattered was that these companies had harmed their competitors' market share— One scholar wrote that the case stands for the proposition that an adverse effect on a competitor, even on one in a quasi-monopoly position, whose sales and profits continue to expand and whose only injury is the loss of market dominance as a result of price competition, which he himself engenders, is enough for the Supreme Court to impose antitrust liability. As Josh put it,
4: From an economic logic perspective, from a consumer perspective, Utah High surely uh, makes the cut of anybody's hall of shame. I think Bond's Grocery and Brown Shoe, the sort of two merger cases in the 60s, get there as well. But I think Utah Pie has got to be um, sort of right up there in the lead. It is at its very core uh, a case uh, in which the Supreme Court interprets the Sherman Act to find that low prices themselves, uh, without harm to competition, just harm to the rivals who are course, are put off by being out by um, someone else selling a better mousetrap or, or, or cheaper lemonade at the lemonade stand next door, in this case, pie.
1: But as one Supreme Court dissenter would point out, there's got to be a better way.
0: Enter Vaughn's Grocery.
1: In 1889, Rudolph and Caroline Vandera immigrated from Denmark to the United States, eventually settling in Illinois. Their son Charles started work as a delivery boy for a meat shop in Illinois, but eventually moved to what was then a small Southern California city, called Los Angeles, to seek fortune. In 1906, at just 17 years old, Charles took a $1,200 investment and opened a 20-foot store on the corner of 7th and Figueroa, and he named it Vons Grociateria.
0: What made Vons different from other stores at the time was that it offered cash and carry, in contrast to what other grocers used, charge and deliver. Charles also pioneered the idea of leasing different parts of the store to various produce vendors and butchers, a sort of prototype for the first supermarket. By 1928, Charles had expanded Vons to 87 stores. In 1929, anticipating the stock
1: market crash, Charles sold the business. But some years later, Charles's sons convinced him to invest in a new endeavor, and in 1932, with their father's financial backing, they opened the Vons Grocery Company. In its second iteration, Vons continued to be an innovator. It was among the first to offer self-service, as well as prepackaged produce, meat, and deli items. It's also said that many commonplace features of modern supermarkets, like bulk buying, large format stores, open refrigerated cases, and the sent-off coupon system resulted from early competition between Vons and Ralph's.
0: By 1958, Vons had grown to the third-largest grocery chain in the greater Los Angeles area. And in 1960, it acquired the sixth-largest competitor, Shopping Bag Food Stores. Together, these firms accounted for just 7.5% of the total grocery sales in L.A. But the merger was challenged by the FTC, which argued that there was a reasonable probability that the merger would tend substantially to lessen competition in violation of the Clayton
1: Act. The district court ruled that the merger did not violate the Clayton Act, and Vons took possession of all of Shopping Bag's assets. But then, the FTC took the case to the Supreme Court.
6: <clears throat> Number 303, United States Appellant versus Vons Grocery Company et al. Mr. Posner.
2: Mr. Chief Justice, your honors.
0: Yes, that's future Seventh Circuit Judge Richard
1: Posner arguing for the United States. In a 6-2 decision... There were only eight justices because Justice Abe Fortas recused himself. The Supreme Court sided with the FTC and against Vons. Writing for the majority, Justice Hugo Black noted that for many years before the merger, both Vons and Shopping Bag had been rapidly growing companies, and together they create the second largest grocery chain in all of Los Angeles.
0: Justice Black also noted the recent decline in the number of single stores in the area from over 5,000 in 1950 to just less than 4,000 in 1961 to about 3,600 in 1963. During roughly the same period, he said, the number of chains with two or more grocery stores had increased. Thus, he wrote, While the grocery business was being concentrated into the hands of fewer and fewer owners, the small companies were continually
1: being absorbed by the larger firms through mergers. Justice Black's opinion is overwhelmingly focused on protecting the number of small businesses, whatever the costs. He quotes earlier Supreme Court opinions lamenting the tendency of bigger entities to, quote, drive out of business the small dealers and worthy men whose lives have been spent therein and who might be unable to readjust themselves to their altered surroundings.
0: And he cited the infamous Alcoa case for the proposition that, quote, throughout the history of antitrust statutes, it has been constantly assumed that one of their purposes was to perpetuate and preserve, for its own sake and in spite of possible cost, an organization of industry and small units which can effectively compete with each other. He later said that Congress's intention in enacting antitrust legislation had been to, quote, protect the smaller businessmen from elimination.
1: What we have, Justice Black concluded, is simply the case of two already powerful companies merging in a way which makes them even more powerful than they were before. If ever such a merger would not violate Section 7, certainly it does when it takes place in a market characterized by a long and continuous trend towards fewer and fewer owner-competitors, which is exactly the sort of trend which Congress, with power to do so, declared must be arrested. The problem
0: is that the majority plays a simple numbers game. It considers a reduction in the number of businesses to be determinative. But as Josh notes, sometimes healthy competition actually results in a small number of bigger businesses.
4: All things equal. If I add a bunch of firms on to compete, I get more competition. But some types of competition, let's say innovation. If we're in a product market where it's really important for consumers that I not just lower the price, but I, I make a better product, right? I, I, I innovate. I improve quality. When there's economies of scale in the production of, of quality, so t- say, let's say it takes research and development to improve quality, which it often does, right? We think about, you know, pharmaceutical industry or something like that, where it takes real research and development to develop a product, you get big economies of scale. So to, to be effective at competing, I have to be larger, right? Right. And so in some markets, it's going to be uh, competition leads to fewer firms. So the more competition I get, the more effective firms are. There's not a magic number of firms. Most of this big is bad thinking. Some of it's just sort of purely political. But the analytical component of it is based on the idea that it is always the number of firms that determines the amount of competition, but never the causation running the other way. And that's just not true. Sometimes it is the type of competition that determines the number of firms. If we're competing on quality, if we're competing on innovation, if we're competing on all of those other margins, sometimes it is the competition that means, well, goodness, we we're going to do a bunch of R and D to compete, not just lower prices and put products on shelves. Then I'm going to have two, three, four firms standing because the effective ones are going to have to be that large um, to take advantage of the economies of scale and do the R and D right.
1: And contrary to the majority's assumption that big equals bad, as Ashley points out,
5: it's behavior that's bad. It's not the status of the you know actor that's bad. Um, it's really just that you know bad is bad, big isn't bad, <laughs> and that's what it should be judged on. That's why it doesn't make any sense to apply different laws to different companies of different size and sizes in most circumstances because it should be what if
1: what they're doing legitimately harms consumers, then it. Should it matter? In a devastating dissent, Justice Potter Stewart, joined by Justice John Harlan II, pointed out that there's also the risk that the court is getting the numbers game wrong. And who better to read this dissent than former Assistant Attorney General in the Antitrust Division of the DOJ and current DC Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Douglas Ginsburg?
3: The standards of Section 7 require that every corporate acquisition be judged in the light of the contemporary economic context of its industry. Today, the court makes no effort to appraise the competitive effects of this acquisition in terms of the contemporary economy of the retail food industry in the Los Angeles area. Instead, through a simple exercise in sums, it finds that the number of individual competitors in the market has decreased over the years. And apparently on the theory that the degree of competition is invariably proportionate to the number of competitors, it holds that this historic reduction in the number of competing units is enough under Section 7 to invalidate a merger, with no need to examine the economic concentration of the market, the level of competition in the market, or the potential adverse effect of the merger on that competition. This startling per se rule is contrary not only to our previous decisions, but contrary to the language of Section 7, contrary to the legislative history, and contrary to economic reality. I believe that even the most superficial analysis of the record makes plain the fallacy of the court's syllogism that competition is necessarily reduced when the bare number of competitors has declined. Local competition is vigorous to a fault, not only among chain stores themselves, but also between chain stores and single-store operators. The continuing population explosion of the Los Angeles area, which has outrun the expansion plans of even the largest chains, offers a surfeit of business opportunity for stores of all sizes. Affiliated with the cooperatives that give the smallest store the buying strength of its largest competitor, new stores have taken full advantage of the remarkable ease of entry into the market. And most important of all, the record simply cries out that the numerical decline in the number of single store owners is the result of transcending social and technological changes that positively preclude the inference that competition has suffered because of the attrition of competitors.
0: Here, Justice Stewart dropped a powerful footnote noting the technological and industry changes which necessarily meant a declining number of small stores. Quoting another commentator, he said, Any child alive in the 1950s could see that a restructuring of food retailing was then going on. The business was adjusting itself to vast and profound changes in the American way of life. There is not a word in the FTC majority opinion that relates changes in the number of stores to the proliferation of suburbs, the construction of shopping centers, and the final triumph of the supermarket, an innovation in retailing that has since spread across the Western world. The most important single cause of these changes was the automobile revolution, which not even the FTC could stop.
1: He also noted that not everything was rosy for consumers when small businesses predominated, saying, Plenty of living American men and women remember an era when virtually all groceries were sold through very small stores. Was this era the high point of competition in food retailing? Many little towns had, in fact, only one place where a given kind of food could be bought. In a typical city neighborhood, defined by the range of a housewife's willingness to lug groceries home on foot, there might be three or four so-called competitors. If she did not like the price or quality offered by them, she could take her black string market bag, board a trolley car, and try her luck among the relaxed competitors of some other neighborhood. Justice Stewart's point is that competition doesn't necessarily depend on numbers, it depends on market conditions.
0: Justice Stewart also disputed the majority's characterization of the numbers, noting that in the previous decade, the market share of the leading two grocery chains in LA had actually declined, and any growth of chain stores had occurred among chains of the very smallest size, those composed of two or three grocery stores. In fact, 208 of the 269 chain stores doing business in LA were two or three store
1: chains. The irony of this case, he explained,
3: is that the court invokes its sweeping new construction of Section 7 to the detriment of a merger between two relatively successful, local, largely family owned concerns, each of which had less than 5% of the local market, and neither of which had any prior history of growth by acquisition. In a sense, the defendants are being punished for the sin of aggressive competition. 3,590 single-store firms is a lot of grocery stores. The large number of separate competitors and the frequent price battles between them belie any suggestion that price competition in the area is even remotely threatened by a descent to the sort of consciously interdependent pricing that is characteristic of a market turning the corner toward our oligopoly. By any realistic criterion, retail food competition in Los Angeles is today more intense than ever.
1: In a judicial mic drop moment, Justice Stewart concluded with this.
3: In a single sentence and an omnibus footnote at the close of the opinion, the court pronounces its work consistent with the line of our decisions under Section 7 since the passage of the 1950 Amendment. The sole consistency that I can find is that in litigation under Section 7, the government always wins.
1: As Justice Stewart's dissent in Vaughn's makes clear, a lot was wrong with antitrust enforcement in the 1960s, but change was on the horizon. The chaos of the era surrounding Vaughn's grocery.
4: Sort of set up this revolution in the seventies. Often, in antitrust circles, described as the Chicago School revolution, was really only part of the story. Uh, By the seventies, you had everyone from Dick Posner to Ralph Nader sort of pointing at antitrust enforcement and saying, "The hell's going on? Um, It's uh, it's everything's illegal. We're granting sort of huge swaths of prosecutorial discretion to the DOJ and FTC because everything from selling left and right shoes together." to low prices, to high prices, to small mergers, to big mergers, to vertical mergers. All of it is unlawful and sometimes criminal.
0: Fun fact, that Dick Posner, Josh mentioned, is the same Richard Posner who argued Vaughn's grocery on behalf of the United States and later became a federal judge. Judge Posner seemingly changed his tune between his Vaughn's argument and the revolution of the 1970s, joining the fight for a new standard of government antitrust enforcement. Here's Ashley.
5: In the 60s, early 70s, it, it was kind of a great timing of things in this movement, and both in gaining a better understanding of economics and how industrial policy works and how markets operate and how market concentration is not necessarily that much tied to market power, for example. Um, that happened to collide with, I would say more generally, the conservative legal movement and the ideology that it needs to have something to be um to give you know, this five like guide roads that make sense is is pro-consumer josh added
4: i think this was really the fight for antitrust soul in the 1960s and 70s was are we going to have a formulaic size-based antitrust regime where we count the number of firms with our fingers and shout out lawful or unlawful based on our sort of you know wing of that you know uh, shooting from the hip Uh, perceptions about how many firms is too many, or are we going to be guided by economic evidence and actually sort of look under the hood and try to figure out, is this merger good or bad?
1: So what went out? We call it the Consumer Welfare Standard. And what's that, you ask? (sighs)
4: Um, the consumer welfare standard is uh, I like to think about it as a, a sort of methodological commitment of the antitrust laws uh, that we will be governed both in procedural rules, okay, motion to dismiss standard, summary judgment standard, evidentiary burdens, but also substantive liability rules with promoting, maximizing consumer welfare. And so you get all sorts of different actual sort of black-letter law for specific tests across the gamut of behavior that the Sherman Act reaches. But what the Consumer Welfare Standard is, in short, is a methodological commitment by antitrust institutions to adopt rules that promote consumer welfare, make consumers better off rather than worse off.
0: Ashley summed it up.
5: Essentially, anti-competitive conduct, uh, in short, is anything that... Uh,
0: harms consumers by harming the competitive process. Rather than a presumption that big equals bad, the consumer welfare standard posits that antitrust enforcement should use empirical evidence to determine whether the anti-competitive effects outweigh the competitive benefits to consumers.
1: What has that led to? Undeniable human flourishing.
0: Big business is awesome. Economies of scale
3: reduce the cost of things. Big business is awesome.
4: The consumer welfare standard has contributed quite a bit. I don't think that there's any real disagreement among antitrust practitioners, antitrust experts, left, right, and center antitrust uh, academics, with the exception of a small few, that the adoption of the consumer welfare standard was a boon to the American economy compared to what we were doing prior when largely all mergers were unlawful. There's a famous um, Justice Scalia opinion in Trinco. There's a little love poem to monopoly pricing in there, uh, monopoly pricing that arises from innovations. In our antitrust system, we know if you build the better mousetrap and you attract all of the customers because you innovate, yes, you get to charge the monopoly price. We don't just tolerate that. That's a It's a feature, not a bug of the American antitrust laws. We've gotten much more of a deeper commitment um, to letting competition run wild. And if it means that there's lots of competition and one firm gets to the top of the hill, we don't look at the casualties all down the hill and say, look, there was no competition. We don't do that here. I don't think that it is a shock that there's much more entrepreneurial and innovative activity in the United States than there is in Europe.
1: Yet, despite all this, Popular sentiment against bigness is rising again, making some people yearn for the days of Vaughn's Grocery. You might call this rising tide.
4: Hipster antitrust, trust, trust, trust. trust, trust.
1: Says Josh.
4: There's been a sort of a, a populist group joined by kind of um, oversimplified, but far left and far right, Liz Warren, and I guess Josh Hawley is the political embodiments. Um, and then in the academic wing, the neo Brandeisians. I called it hipster antitrust and it really is a critique that goes back to this sort of 1960s and earlier era thus the hipster antitrust label um, where they say no we need to blow up the whole thing the problem with the consumer welfare standard is what everyone else describes as the feature which is it tethers antitrust to economic evidence and we said, we don't want that. We've got a broader vision for what the role that antitrust should play and the role that antitrust agencies should play in the shaping of our lives um, and the shaping of firms and institutions down to using antitrust to control board membership and the shape and size of firms. Uh, can Amazon be a platform and also sell you private label batteries? Um sort of down to micromanaging product design. you sell a phone, what's the default search engine? Those those sort of types of things. They want not just antitrust to be controlling those in a more aggressive fashion, but all of the things that we criticized about the 1890 to 1977, they want antitrust used as a tool um, to try to promote not just consumer welfare, but Employer-employee relationships, um, the environment, other sort of social justice goals. There's um, the new chair of, of the FTC, Lena, Lena Khan, that have made her made her bones writing an article in the context of Amazon, but sort of making a general point that, uh, remember the good old days of Utah Pie, wouldn't it be great if we were sort of back in the Utah Pie days? And No, no, it would not be great. We've got experience with an antitrust world uh, without the consumer welfare standard, and it's largely been uh, an unfortunate one.
0: Modern antitrust proposals include banning vertical mergers. That's where two companies in the same supply chain merge, like when Amazon offers you Amazon branded batteries or using different horizontal merger rules depending on how big a business is. Perhaps worst of all, they want to get rid of the consumer welfare
1: standard the question is, why? It's not surprising that some of the familiar suspects would want more government power over business and more central planning. But for others who proclaim to favor small government and free markets, it's perplexing. One answer can be found in the fact that many small government proponents find themselves very upset about the way they've been treated lately by big tech, says Ashley.
5: And right. I think they're mad at big tech for other reasons that I find to be completely understandable, but they aren't antitrust reasons whatsoever. But antitrust is a powerful tool and they want to use it as a powerful regulatory tool. And it's um, kind of viewed as you know this opaque problem solver that it really wouldn't quite be. And the consumer welfare center, that's a major victory for the conservative legal movement as a whole. And there, how many other areas of law are there in which we've actually managed to rein it back in? And it's not kind of you know gone completely in the other direction, um, especially civil law. There's not enough appreciation for what it t- took to get there and what it could potentially be used for and what sort of goals can be inserted in the process. I think the progress that is being destroyed is absolutely not worth it. Um, it's not worth it for this one time in which they you know, might accomplish their goal um, by what they're doing once, maybe.
0: But there are other reasons people are once again turning against big business. We chatted with a couple well-known defenders of capitalism about why that bias is misguided.
2: Hi, I'm Yaron Brook. I'm the chairman of the board of the Ayn Rand Institute and the host of the Yaron Brook Show.
1: Yaron is also a former finance professor and author of the book Free Market Revolution. Notably, Ayn Rand was a leading philosophic critic of antitrust law in the 1960s. We also interviewed.
6: My name is Hannah Cox. I am the content manager and brand ambassador for the Foundation for Economic Education, better known as FEE. And I also am the host of my own show, which is called BASED.
1: As Hannah notes, attacks on big tech are actually attacks on freedom. When it comes
6: to The issues people have with these companies. Their real issue is with the free market. They don't like that these businesses are running their companies in ways that don't personally align with their values. They constantly feel that they're the underdog, that everything's stacked against them, that nobody fights in their corner, that they're losing the culture. And what they ultimately end up doing because of that is trying to fight back in ways that actually sell out their values. And in fact, when we see them moving bills at the state level, what they're often seeking to do is to they themselves get power over how they moderate their content and how they set their policies. And that's a dangerous place for a society to be because we know that if you actually want to guard liberty, and that means you guard the liberty of people who you don't like. You guard the liberty of people who are using their freedoms in ways that you don't personally agree with or wouldn't stand by or wouldn't do yourself. But you do this in, in order to hold up a society where we actually do protect individual liberty and in, in our constitution.
0: We asked Yaron about the argument that just like the government, big business has to be reined in because they essentially have a monopoly and therefore coercive power over people.
2: Unfortunately, we have, we confuse two very important philosophical concepts. We confuse political power with economic power. Political power is the power of coercion. Political power is the power of the gun. Political power is the power of authority to tell you what you can and cannot do, what you shouldn't, shouldn't do. And if you don't abide by it, a, a gun is pulled out, a fist is pulled out, force is used. Economic power is the power to voluntarily engage with people in win-win transactions. You can walk away from trade. Nobody forces you to engage in a trade, to engage uh, in in selling and buying. So economic power is a voluntary power. You can walk away from it, and it's a power that is primarily used to enhance human well-being. And people conflate economic power with political power. They think that because. Uh, Apple is big, it somehow coerces people, but it doesn't. It can only deal with people on the basis of exchange. It can only deal with people on the basis of voluntary trade. Uh, And, you know, it's really, really important that we uh, clear this confusion about the difference between economic and political power because, uh, yes, we want limited government. We want small government. We want to constrain political power. Economic power? is a sign of success. The bigger you are, the the more you be successful, the more you produced, uh, the more value you've created.
1: The reason people get these concepts confused, he said, is because…
2: People associate the fact that uh, they take now for granted and they take as a right whatever it is that they're using, whatever it is that contributes to what they perceive as their lifestyle. So that Facebook now… Uh, if you're kicked off of Facebook, you know that is somehow a violation of your rights. Um, no, uh, So you kicked off Facebook. So what? Uh, you know, you could be you could be thrown out of a store because you're violating uh, you know some uh, requirement that they have at a particular a particular store, you've done something that 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 makes them unhappy. It's their private property. They have a right to do it. And uh, if we confuse private property with public property, We undermine the whole basis of freedom, the whole basis of capitalism, the whole basis of modern civilization. We undermine the very idea of private property.
1: Moreover, while people call these companies monopolies, nothing lasts forever. Many of the supposed monopolists of the past are now largely irrelevant, said Hannah.
6: We have lots of competition in the tech market and constantly emerging new sources. We do see even the biggest businesses ultimately fail, break up go away, become less powerful, these things naturally occur. They don't naturally occur tomorrow, but they do naturally occur. And we've already seen that in the limited time that we've been in this you know, internet age where Facebook was not the dominant company 10, 15 years ago. And I look at Twitter's rankings and their power and the amount of users they have, they're like number 12. like They're not even that powerful in their own sector. And so ultimately, what we do see them wanting to do is come in and use the government to break up big tech, pick winners and losers, essentially violate the free market for a very short-term win. And the problem I have with all of that is not only is that detrimental to our market, not only does that decrease innovation and growth, but ultimately it undermines the actual free market itself. Because when we go around and we Say we support free markets. We support capitalism. We do. We this is our thing. And then we push these policies that are anything but. Eventually, people start to believe you, and that's why so many people think they're mad at capitalism. Iran explained.
2: Uh, you go back to uh, the 1870s, where Standard Oil had 93 of the refining capacity of oil in the United States, and that was a big impetus for the passage of the antitrust laws uh, in in uh, 1890. Uh, by the time standard oil is broken up, which is in, I think, the 1920s, early 1920s, it is only 23 to 25% of the oil refining capacity in the United States. And what it did in the 1870s was provide kerosene for lighting. By the time it's broken up, nobody uses kerosene for lighting, right? They've already been competed out of that business completely by electricity. No government regulator No lawyer, no judge, no entrepreneur would have imagined that that was an alternative. And even Apple, it's not that long ago that Apple was a company on the verge of bankruptcy. And now it's the most dominant, one of the most dominant companies in the world. Who knows where it's going to be in 10 years? That's the beauty of competitive markets. If Congress wants to do something about big tech, then encourage competition, which would require them to get out of the business of regulating business, out of the business of regulating uh, allocation of capital, maybe reduce taxes. There are a lot of things that the government can do to encourage and increase competition. None of them have to do with antitrust law.
0: Bias against big business is also motivated by the fact that some see work and business as dirty words. Hannah elaborated on this.
6: You see a lot of people putting down work, putting down certain kinds of jobs. I think there's value in every job. And I've had really low on the totem pole jobs, and I've had really fantastic jobs. But I have always found value in every single one. I found meaning. It's been empowering to be able to pay for myself, to be able to build, to to learn new skills. Like These are things that we need to encourage. My um, grandfather on my dad's side had an eighth grade education, and he had a dirty job. He worked in a pipe factory in Alabama every day of his life, all the way through retirement. And I remember when he would come home, he was so dirty that my grandmother would lay newspapers from the back door to the bathroom. And I'd have to go in the back room until he got done showering. So he'd have to strip outside, come in, walk on the newspapers and go and get immediately into the shower. And I couldn't hug him until he was done. And, and that was the kind of work he did. But at the end of the day. He never looked down upon it. He was proud of his work. He was proud to provide for his family. He did that on an eighth-grade education. He built his own home with his house. He retired. He left money to my father and his other siblings. You know, it wasn't a ton, but like he was a proud, respectable man in his community. We used to say there's pride in in working hard and in having a job and in, in fulfilling your obligations and being a good husband and being a good
1: father. Like that is something to be proud of in this society. There's nothing dirty about honest work, whether it's small or big. There's something beautiful in providing an everyday service that benefits people. There's also something beautiful about creating a business that changes the world. If bigness is your goal, as it was to Charles Vondra, there's nothing wrong with that.
2: But the fact is that every small business, or most small businesses, want to be big, right? Bigness is a sign of success. And how does a company become big? A company becomes big by producing great products. And convincing millions, sometimes billions of people to engage in trade with them. And by engaging with trade with them, what happens to those billions of people? Their lives get better. The reason we buy an iPhone for a thousand bucks is because the iPhone is worth more than a thousand to us. So every person who buys an iPhone, their life gets better. The more people buy iPhones, the more Apple has improved human life on planet Earth. So bigness is a sign of success. A sign of success in what? A sign of success in improving human life. Uh, business, I often say, you know, how do you become a billionaire? By by making life on planet Earth better for a lot of people who are willing to pay for your product more than it costs you to produce it over and over and over again. But that's a sign that you're doing something well. From an economic perspective, you could argue that bigness is actually good. That big business is good. The massive economies of scale, always happy. This is why uh, Standard Oil and U.S. Steel and and the networking effect that that Microsoft that all of us using basically the same platform that uh, all of us using kind of the search the same search engine in Google that we all can communicate or all of us having basically the same standards on our phones and therefore can easily communicate. There are massive benefits to standardization and bigness, and the market reflects that. And the market reflects that by Showing us, right, by rewarding business, by investing in business, by giving them a significant market share, uh, by making it easy for them to raise capital. So the market recognizes, at least for some industries, that there's massive advantages. Think about Amazon. Think about if you broke Amazon into 100 different companies, they couldn't do what they do. And the reason is just the logistics of it. The benefit of Amazon is having massive warehouses where they house everywhere. All over the country, so they can actually do next day delivery, or in some cases, shockingly, same day delivery, right? You can get your products the same day you order them, delivered to your home. That is only possible because of the size of Amazon. So, size in business, in certain businesses, certainly does matter. We uh, have this idea that bigness but necessity is wrong. It's not driven by anything economic, it's not driven by any philosophical issues. This is driven by an ignorance. It's driven by this confusion that I mentioned between political power and economic power. And it's driven by the idea that somehow bigness provides business with political power.
1: I mentioned to you on an article I had read about how Amazon was vastly benefiting the environment. He said,
2: fewer trucks, fewer trucks, because, you know, Amazon has better logistics has fewer trucks, Everything is more optimized. Everything is more efficient. Emissions are lower. Pollution generally is lower. And we're getting unbelievable services. And it's providing millions of jobs, not just directly through Amazon, but all, this, all the companies that sell through Amazon's are able to be profitable and able to supply jobs. People think they're, you know, if only I had billions of dollars. I don't know if you saw the tweet, this UN guy who said, if uh, Elon Musk just gave us $6 billion, we could solve world hunger. And Elon Musk said, if you could solve world hunger, I'd give you $6 billion. And then the guy had to backtrack and said, well, I didn't really mean solve. And that's exactly the point. There is no throw money at the problem. The problem goes away. Uh, the, the, the way to solve problems is allowing markets to work, and they will solve these problems.
1: In sum, the free market isn't always at any one time perfect, but it's the best damn thing we've got.
2: Look, there might be occasions where for a period, the solution the market offers is not what appears from the outside as optimal. But the price you pay for trying to make it optimal is far greater than whatever cost that lack of optimality has because the price you're paying is allowing for government to intervene in a marketplace. And that is a slippery slope and it has wide ranging consequences.
6: Hannah added... And I think that's where we fail sometimes. Is trying to make the point that capitalism's perfect and there's no flaws. There, there are some flaws. There are some downsides to capitalism. Like if you don't work very hard, or if you um, start off from a different place in life, not the same opportunities as other people. But at the end of the day, because we all have ourselves to rely upon, you have the opportunity at all times to still make more of yourself than where you were born. To still make the most of opportunities. Um, and I think that we should say, you know, capitalism may not be perfect. It might have some flaws, but in comparison. To every other system that has ever been attempted or thought, this has vastly superseded um, where any other culture has gotten to. We have created more wealth. We have alleviated more diseases. We have increased the quality and the length of life. And we have ultimately created a better um, uh, course of life for people throughout their entire livelihoods from from birth to all the way to death, where we see every generation does get better than the generation before. Every generation does have access to better technology, better healthcare, more innovation. Um, and, and so as a whole, I really don't think anybody could sit down and scrutinize all the various systems and come away with anything other than capitalism is the one we should keep trying. And the flaws that we do see within it are often due to violations against it and it not being protected enough. Capitalism, while I also would say it has never been fully implemented thanks to governments, every time we have tried it has led to massive prosperity and increases in wealth and increases in the quality of life. So it is very clear which system we should keep trying to get to. In
0: short... Big
4: business is awesome.
3: Awesome
1: when and if wanting to weaponize 1960s antitrust law against big business is hip, I don't want to be cool.
0: Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. we appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org.
1: And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out this.
0: I tried to rewrite this first sentence because this, I just know I'm going to get tripped up on this. It's a whole lot of, it's a whole lot of words.
5: Well, once again, I would say that you libertarians live in a really nice, perfect world. And <laughs> hey, I just don't think that's possible at this point. Um, I think there are too many other regulations for that to ever be possible. And that Mark, you know, that ship is sailed. Okay. And maybe I'm, sorry, it's kind of down a downer response, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, here comes the Apple.
4: People like their private label products. They're cheap. Um, you know, people love their, you know, it's it's not on camera, but you know, but I've I've got a Kirkland brand whiskey somewhere around me. You know, it's
3: it's good stuff.
1: Big business is awesome. <laughs> you guys don't like a movie.
3: Wouldn't it
2: be nice if we could pass an amendment to the constitution that established a separation between economics and state, between business and state. And there, and then if you had. If politicians had no ability to intervene in your business, you would have no incentive to intervene in theirs. And that's how you get rid of colonialism. Keep talking. See if you can get his attention. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Justice Ginsburg. Can you hear me?
3: Judge Ginsburg, can you hear me?
2: I'll send him an email,
3: maybe. Sorry, we're here to record. I sent you the wrong time. It's my bad. I don't think you can hear me.
2: Maybe if we make enough movement,
3: catch it in his peripheral vision.